Hi, William. Hey, Marcus. <laughs> um, very good to see you again. We only spoke yesterday, um, and, but today is about, um, I want to kind of like find out a few things about you that I do have no idea about. Um, I, you know, and even though I've, we've known each other for five years or something, I guess, um, there are, there are aspects of your life that I have no uh, understanding of whatsoever, which is exciting. It's kind of like what I live for, these kinds of situations. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, just be just before kind of like um, uh, meeting you here, I had a look at what it says on the website of your um, of your employer, right? Okay. Which is the University of Ch Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I found I find find this this one one is basically a one sentence uh summary of who you are and i think it's it's absolutely amazing you know like it, it's so good that i think you must have written it yourself <laughs> i am guilty yeah that piece of text <laughs> and you know like usually there are there are no introductions here in this format you know but um but you know like i i like this this sentence so much i'm i'm gonna try to read it yeah so it's uh, William T.S. Mazzarella writes and teaches on the political anthropology of mass publicity, critical theory, effect and aesthetics, psychoanalysis, ritual and performance, and the occult shadow of the modern. <laughs> Amazing. So what is, what is the occult shadow of the modern? Well, so briefly, I guess, you know, what that means is that I have become convinced that all the things that um, the usual story that we tell ourselves about modern life, you know, that it's um, a doing away with magic, it's a doing away with um, esoteric forces, all of that stuff. Um, I sort of became convinced that that's, that's never been the case, that those things uh, continue to be with us even though we don't necessarily recognize them in that form. Mm -hmm. They continue to be with us in places like music um, or in places like art in general, but also I would say in uh, political life and public life more generally. Um, I think one place where we can see something like magic operating in everyday life is in the space of what we call charisma, for instance. Um, you know, this is a word that we throw around. We, we all kind of know what it means. But when we try and put our finger on it, it's very uh, slippery. It's very elusive. We don't know where it is. Is it in people? Is it in things? Is it between people? Is it between people and things? Is it in beliefs? So uh, all of this is just to say that um, a lot of the work that I've done and a lot of the stuff I think about from day to day, both at a personal and at a professional level, has to do with this question of the persistence, or not even persistence, because that suggests that these things are archaic in some way, but the flourishing of um, what we could call magic in uh, in everyday life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's fascinating that one can have that as a field of research or study and or study okay yeah but research <laughs> it's uh it's fascinating um 
So can you explain to me, um, and you can be as brief or as, you know, you know, you <laughs> just, just tell me how you arrived even at this, at this place of, of being, uh, more than interested in these questions. Right. More than interested is a good, a, a good expression, right? Because it suggests that there's actually something more at stake than something professional. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it also sounds a little bit like that expression more than happy, which I always find a little creepy. Like I don't actually want anyone <laughs> to be more than happy. Happy is good. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, how did I become interested in that? Um, you know, the first, uh, the first form in which I took this up was actually, um, my, my dissertation project and my first book, which was about advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think advertising is actually one of the places where this kind of magical, uh, force or, or action is, is very present and prevalent in a way in everyday life and in ways that we don't even think about, um, Partly we don't think about it because we like to tell ourselves that we're kind of too smart for advertising and, you know, we, we have our like critical consciousness and we're always deconstructing the messages that are being sent to us and we think they don't work on us. But the argument that I would make is that we nevertheless think that they work on someone else. Even if we don't think that they work on us, we often think that there's someone else somewhere who is being influenced by this stuff. Uh, and that's the way these things often work is that it's no one believes in them directly. They believe that someone else believes in them. And because they believe that someone else believes in them, they act as if they're real. So, so they become real. Um, so that's, uh, that's one answer to the question. But I think, you know, this is uh, the, the deeper question, you know, why are we interested in the things we're interested in is really... Um, maybe not for me to answer, but maybe for my shrink, you know, I mean, it's, it's the question of um, the deepest motivations that we bring to the, the, the questions that interest us. You know, there's a Michel Lery, the, uh, the mid-century French, uh, uh, I guess, in a sense, anthropologist and surrealist and writer, um, had a great expression, which I often bring up um, both in conversations with friends and conversations with students. And he asks the question, uh, what is a true fetish? And uh, the exp- expression that he uses to describe a true fetish is a tender sphinx. And what he means, and what I think he means by that is, you know, a tender sphinx is something that you nurture at the very core of yourself. So you, you have a tender relationship to it. But it's a sphinx in the sense that it's kind of enigmatic. Like you don't, it doesn't explain itself. You don't ever know what it is. But it's something that, kind of drives you from deep inside. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing that I'm always trying to get at both with myself and, and with students is, you know, what is your tender sphinx? Like you're never going to be able to answer that question exhaustively. You're never going to be able to identify it, put a name on it, put a label on it, mm-hmm. but you will know it by its effects. Like you will know it by the fact that as you go through life, you find yourself over time returning to the same questions, the same preoccupations in new variations. So it's like your symptom, you know, it's the thing that kind of keeps manifesting through your life in different ways. <laughs> uh, and I think this one for me, you know, what we're calling the occult shadow of the modern, that kind of, maybe that's my symptom, you know, maybe that's my tender sphinx. Why I'm preoccupied with that? 
couldn't tell you. But it's it's something I keep coming back to. Yeah, you know, I, I find the question why um, not useful anyway. Um, that's why I that's why I asked about the how, right? And and I think there is, you know, because you, you were talking like maybe your shrink um, knows better than you do. But who is the original shrink? Like the original shrink is what is ourselves, right? And I, I, I don't know. I, I really, I really have no idea what an uh, anthropologist is or does, or you know, like uh, uh, I want to get an idea about that today. Um, but maybe there's there are some some uh, facets. Uh, in what you do that are shrink-like? Yeah. I guess so, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, um, this gets us to a very interesting problem um, in anthropology, and I guess in um, social science more generally, or even mm -hmm. humanities. Mm -hmm. But it's a problem, especially when you're doing research on actually existing people in the world. Like you're going out and doing research on some particular set of people. Mm -hmm. um, and that problem is, um, do you merely re reproduce what they tell you about their lives? Mm -hmm. Right? Do you, is your job as, as an anthropologist, let's say, uh, simply to represent them in their own words? Mm -hmm. um, And I think that there are some uh, anthropologists uh, who think that that is the, the job of anthropology and that that's the, the ethical way in which to relate to one's um, interlocutors, to represent them in their own words, mm -hmm. in their own, uh, to reproduce their own opinions about their lives. I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think that the work of um, being an anthropologist is in a sense like the work of being a shrink to come to your analogy, not because I know better than the people I'm talking to about their own lives, but because maybe my uh, scholarly engagement with their lives can become an occasion uh, for something unforeseen to emerge uh, and some insight about the context that we're inhabiting together to emerge. Um, and in the process, not only do I learn something, but also maybe the people I'm, uh, as it were, studying, uh, which is a very objectifying kind of term, which I, I don't particularly like, but maybe the people I'm, I'm working with, maybe they also learn something about their own lives in that encounter. Again, not because I know better or because I come with the truth, but because the very uh, occasion of the encounter uh, is an opportunity for some, some kind of insight to arise. Is there, is there such a thing as uh, an agreed upon purpose for anthropology? I think it depends on who you ask. Um, so no. One of, the, one of the glories and one of the frustrations of anthropology is that there are probably as many anthropologies as there are anthropologists. <laughs> that's, that's great though. <laughs> so uh you know there are certainly anthropologists who have a, a more applied uh kind of agenda 
you know, who uh, feel that anthropology should be uh, either of direct political use uh, or um, important from a kind of policy standpoint. There are anthropologists who believe that the purpose is to, like, you know, for its own sake, gather knowledge about the human condition in as many different forms as possible. Mm-hmm. And there are anthropologists who do see anthropology as a kind of therapeutic practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and there are anthropologists who see anthropology as essentially a form of literary practice or artistic practice. Um, so all of these are possible. They're all different forms of engaging with uh, um, the manifold, you know, of the, of, the, of the world that we encounter, the worlds that we encounter. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the word magic that you used, what is your personal, like, you know, I don't want a scientific definition, but what is your understanding? Like, how do you use that word? What do you yeah. use it for? It's a really great question, um, and probably one that I've had sort of shifting thoughts about over the years. Um, and maybe I'll give you a few different things that have occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Um, one very simple um, definition that I was playing with um, some time ago was the idea that magic is the capacity to create worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sometimes that's a, a charismatic capacity. In other words, it's a capacity to create worlds that other people want to live in, or that other people feel themselves drawn to, or um, fascinated by, or uh, activated by in various ways. I think that's one version of maybe what magic could be. Mm-hmm. Another version of magic could be, um, and this I think links us both to art and to something like psychotherapy, is the idea that magic is the capacity of words and images to change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I, in a, in a literary, artistic, musical, or therapeutic, or even a teaching classroom setting, I'm able to alter something about the reality of that situation by using a particular word, or showing a particular image, or playing a particular note. I think that's magic, you know? I mean, we may say that's a very ordinary thing, but actually it's an extraordinary thing. The very fact that by putting something out there, you can actually change the world, even in a small way, even if it just means that it's one person's experience that's fundamentally transformed in that that moment. There's something deeply mysterious about that. For sure. And and it also kind of like raises the question about the the quality uh, with which these actions need to need to come into this world like or if it even matters right so does this is is like a, a random act uh, as magical as uh, some intentional act and right again 
crucial question, right? I think that magical acts are in fact not always intentional, yeah. right? Yeah. Something will turn out to have been magically powerful in this sense that we're talking about, but it was done accidentally or it was um, done unconsciously, which is maybe not quite the same as accidentally. Um, no, it's not the same. I mean, like my whole thing is to kind of like to, to, to practice these random acts to, to appear, you know, yeah. so. But, you know, you could say also that um, to take the kind of examples that people often like to talk about as kind of um, um, cautionary or like warning examples of the, of the power of charisma of magic. If you take a, you know, a sort of uh, authoritarian leader figure, um, you know, whether it's like an extreme example, like, uh, you know, a Hitler, or whether it's um, a kind of more buffoonish example, like Trump, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, I think with a figure like Trump, part of what's interesting is that there's a kind of idiot savant quality to him. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. it's like, I don't think he actually sits down and consciously thinks through what he's doing, mm -hmm. but he nevertheless has a kind of magical capacity. Uh, and it's a kind of intuitive thing that he is able to, at some point he recognized that he was able to do. And I think he kind of rides it in the moment mm -hmm. and he, and he, for whatever reason, and it's, I think it's also a question of, you know, someone with a magical capacity will have that capacity also as a function of the time and place in which they exist. You know, like Trump 20 years earlier would not have been able to do the same thing, you know, uh, or 20 years later, maybe, hopefully. Um, you know, but there's, but there's something about the, the relationship between a kind of social and historical context and the capacity of an individual to kind of bring that context alive in particular ways. Maybe that's also part of what we talk about when we talk about magic. It's, it's actually very funny uh, because I, I watched uh, some Trump today by accident. And it was where he was talking about like this in IQ test that he took or something. And it was fascinating because I believed him. Like what he was saying, I believed him. And I think he was, what he was saying was genuine. It was, it was, it was kind of a super interesting experience. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that, that just had a side, side note, but coming back to like the, the definition of magic, I think like my, my, my very own, mm. uh, thinking about that is that there is like the, like I would, I would actually add something. So I think it is the actual experiencing of something unexpected, right? So if something unexpected happens and you don't notice it, it's not magical, right? It is, it is that, it is that moment of, ah, right. I see this, I hear this, I feel this. And, and, um, uh, and it's kind of like, it's central, central to my work actually. And it's, you know, like uh, it was only, I don't, I don't know, like a few years ago that I started referring or actually using the word magic. And, um, that's why, that's how I, that's how, you know, I was so interested in what you had to say about it. 
um, just to add on to what you were saying, I think uh, whether it's the experience of falling in love, which is maybe also another um, commonly shared experience of the magical, um, or the experience of hearing an album that changes your life, mm-hmm. um, or seeing a movie or reading a book that is you know, transformative. Mm-hmm. There's often the sense that once it's happened, it was destined to happen. And yet, before it happened, you had no idea it was going to happen, right? So I feel like with these events that we call magical, there's the element of, of course, we know they're contingent and in some way random. Like we know that they, like that they might not have happened that way. Like it could have been completely different. We might not have met that person. We might never have come across that album. We might never have seen that movie. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, there's a feeling that it was somehow fated to happen because when it happened, it was so right. Uh, <laughs> and let me add something to that. <laughs> uh, I think those moments are the moments when we're actually, uh, when we're actually aware that we're alive. Mm-hmm. And, and um, because I was just thinking, okay, this morning I went to a doctor to look at my eye and, uh, and she It was just a very mundane, like super mundane situation, right? Mm-hmm. But now that I, when I remember it, and I remember, well, it's a maybe not the best word, but I kind of recall that moment I was there. I was actually alive when I was there, mm-hmm. and that you know, and and that gives even to that most the most mundane thing. It gives it gives it a certain magic. Right. So this because I felt I felt alive when I was there, but I I I I maybe I didn't know I didn't really know I think I did notice, but but like even recalling it, I feel alive, and you know. So yeah, I mean I think there's something else in there also, which is that you I think you and I are both people who in our various ways have been um, committed to. training our attention mm-hmm. um, and are also interested in the question of attention, of uh, how attention can change perception uh, and experience mm-hmm. uh, and concentration. Um, and the perception of the value of something is transformed by the quality of attention that you direct at it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I wonder if... Part of what is, in a way, the, the yield of training attention in that way is that you are more likely to experience moments in the way that you were just describing, even in the, in the midst of the most mundane, as you said, you know, a completely mm-hmm. ordinary moment mm-hmm. uh, can appear to have a kind of transcendent quality. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's not even anything about meaning, right? It's not like you could say that this was a significant moment because it meant X. So for me, the meaning, the meaning is the is the flow of what we call time. Um, we, I mean, we don't need to go into details of like you know, but like yeah, what we experience as time. So there's some sort of let's just call it forward movement, and so my. Uh, me visiting the eye doctor is 
part of me being here talking with you. I would have not mentioned, I couldn't have mentioned that if I hadn't been there. So, so every, every mundane, uh, random event has an effect on, on the current moment, on the, on the present moment. And that is, that is the, that is the magic for me. Uh, and that's why I think, um, it's, I don't do this often, but you know, sometimes there, I kind of like, uh, do these backwards, these backtracing kind of ways of like, how did I get here? Like, you know, and, and doing that as sort of an exercise, you realize like how many really insignificant steps lead to something magical, right? And that's both um, wonderful and terrifying. <laughs> because, because there's something delightful about the fact that so many contingencies, so many happenstances could have led to something wonderful, something magical. Uh, and yet something terrifying about the fact that there were so many moments at which it could have gone another way. Almost every moment it could have gone another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this is this is interesting because yeah, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. But again, if I'm like really honest about my personal experience with with that, is that I I have avoided so many things in my life. I'm a master of avoidance. <laughs> Yet I have I have gotten places where I never thought I would I would get to, and it's I think also here when we're talking about these things we don't we need to make sure we're not confusing quantity with quality. You see what I mean? Like there's like you know, I I don't know why I just came up with that sentence even, but um, that's what it feels like to me. I have. You know, like so many uh, lost opportunities, it's uh, it's unbelievable. And I've and I've mentioned that before in in one of these podcasts, which I and I think you you uh, asked me about that at one point, where um, I was uh, admitting that I have like trouble calling people on the phone, right? And I've had that all my life. So where like it would be so easy to get the ball rolling on something if I was just able to pick up the phone. And I never had that had never had that tool available available I had it available, but I didn't use it. Um, but I still think that there's like uh, uh, I, I regret I don't regret anything, you know somehow still. Yeah. There may be a relationship between what opened up for you because you didn't pick up the phone um, and the, the things that happened in your life. Mm. But I share that with you. I'm also, um, I mean, there's a kind of there's a kind of baseline introversion there that struggles with um, reaching out, being outward, being proactive in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, would you be able to share a few uh, magical moments with us that you had, like? What is the what is the earliest magical moment that you can remember? 
it's interesting because actually the earliest magical moments I can remember is, is something that, uh, you know, might always uh, almost be categorized as kind of um, paranormal or uh, supernatural or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have too many of those in my life. Uh, although I also am not, um, you know, I'm not like a kind of um, rationalist in that sense, like I have no investment in kind of disproving these kinds of things that, you know, I'm quite prepared to, um, I, you know, I, I've lived long enough and uh, shared enough people's experiences that I know that there's a lot of pretty magical stuff in the world. Um, some of it's scary and some of it's um, transformative and sometimes both. But anyway, very early experience I remember. It must have been about um, maybe five years old. Mm-hmm. It was in the first uh, apartment where uh, my parents and I lived in Helsinki. And uh, this was at a time when my parents were still together because my parents split up when I was about seven. Um, so there's maybe some significance to that as well. Um, I had, you know, what I guess I would later learn to understand as a kind of out-of-body experience. And uh, the form it took was that I, it, I felt myself, you know, I was, I was lying in bed. My bedroom was next door to my parents' bedroom. And I experienced myself kind of, you know, rising up out of my own body uh, and kind of floating just underneath the level of the ceiling and kind of floating across to the door to my parents' bedroom, into the parents' bedroom, over their bed, looking down, seeing them asleep, uh, deriving some kind of comfort or contentment from the fact that they seem to be at peace you know, turning around, floating back into my own bedroom and kind of descending back into my own body. And that was it. Um, I think, I guess, you know, another thing comes up for me now in thinking about the, the various kinds of experiences that one has in a lifetime that might qualify as, as kind of magical and of very different kinds is that very often they seem to me to experience uh, or to involve a kind of um, porosity of one's personal boundaries, Mm -hmm. right? That there's some sense of either leaving oneself, stepping outside of oneself, of being overcome by something else, of being, um, you know, the word ecstasy etymologically literally means standing outside oneself, standing outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that we experience in life as having this kind of magical quality are in one way or another about or kind of standing outside oneself or, or having one's, um, the kind of, the shell of one's everyday self in some way dissolved or punctured. And that can be terrifying as well, you know, that can, that can feel like a loss of, of orientation or a loss of, um, 
integrity, personal integrity, but it can also feel like a kind of fusion with the universe. Mm -hmm. with yeah, I, you know, I have had um, very similar experiences. Um, and I think I, I mentioned um, one to you uh, a few weeks back. <clears throat> but really, um, the out of body experience for me that that was much later. That was at around age 20 or so uh, 21, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's super profound, right? Like if you if you think about it, it's, 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 uh, you know, what I was saying about like, uh, experiencing that one is alive. And I think that's kind of like, what that is in a way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, you want to say more about your own experience at 21? Um, at 21? Yeah, it was it was just it was uh, when I was um, working as a uh, it was my civil service. I was working in a hospital and um, and they um, there were like, I think like two weeks of um, some sort of like special schooling like for and like one one part of it one one the half one half of it was sort of like practical stuff and the other half was sort of like just um, some sort of um, um, social sciences kind of um, discussion format, you know, for lack of a better description. And there was a great teacher and we had really profound discussions. And I remember that it was in the in the lunch break where I went to my to my room and, um, you know, lay down on my bed. And it was the exact same thing that you described. Like I didn't I didn't go to some other room. I was in that room and I saw myself there. And it was it was literally the 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 experience of of being alive it was like as if my mind had finally gotten into a feedback loop let's say where where the the depth of the recursion was kind of like it was getting so deep that i really felt um the question and that's sort of like how i would put it it's not it's not that i found any answer no but i was actually capable in that moment the, the the question was totally clear and the question being able to to experience the question because i can't you know it wasn't words or whatever but experiencing the question like am i alive or why am i alive or what does life mean or whatever it was so absolutely stunning and and uh it was the most profound moment in my life where like like I say profound moment, but now we are think about it, like I don't think I've ever left that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, that experience obviously is part of like even though I, I'm not always that high, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, but that but that experience is has been with me ever since. Uh to have managed to ask myself that question. And so I remember that I haven't done that in a long time, but I remember that I was capable of, of um, calling up that state pretty easily uh, after, like I've, after having experienced it, and it somehow has lost its magic. I'm going to use this. I say this. Um, 
because it has it has sort of penetrated my whole being and my whole world as something that is just there and and when i say lost its magic it sounds negative but it's actually something comforting it's like it 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 is not something important it is something that is uh that is around me and that's supporting me yeah i mean it's become part of your essence right Uh, i guess so i think you know um it's just a thought occurred to me as you were saying that and i was connecting it back to your earlier story about being at the eye doctor earlier today and um you know something i was thinking when you were telling that earlier story about the eye doctor was that you know we have no right to um uh we have no right to devalue the ordinary right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to dismiss the ordinary because the ordinary is is potentially full of all kinds of extraordinary things right mm-hmm. uh but in a way the counterpart of that is the story you just told which is that the extraordinary becomes ordinary right mm-hmm. not ordinary in the sense of being worthless or unremarkable but integrated absorbed right mm-hmm. in some way yeah so that you are now carrying with you in you what was an unprecedented and shocking experience when it first happened um and that's i think that there's a lesson in that too right which is that we have we shouldn't forget that as we go along I, you know i'm not trying to be like too kind of starry eyed or romantic about this i don't think that we necessarily like keep getting better or more enlightened or something like that but i think that there is a way that maybe sometimes we miss the extraordinariness of some of the things that we've absorbed along the way just because they've become part of our vocabulary they've become part of our way of being in the world and so we don't even experience them as as that strange or or, or revelatory anymore and sometimes you know it can be good to go back to those moments and and remember how um what an opening it was at the time mm-hmm. This is the I think this is a principle in life more generally right which is that you know very often uh you know either yourself or someone else that you know you know you, you find yourself in the situation where you can't quite remember why you're doing what you're doing you know like you you feel like you've kind of lost your inspiration or you kind of you've forgotten like what it was like why am I even doing this I'm not that it doesn't interest me that much anymore and kind of I feel like I'm spinning my wheels and doing things automatically I I've kind of I've lost my spark. And and at that and at those moments I think it is worth going trying to go back to those moments of like the fork in the path. Like why is it that you're in this place that you are now it has something to do with maybe an inspiration or an opening that you've forgotten. Like that there's some kind of earlier moment where something seemed really significant. And to be able to get back there not because you can retrace your steps but because there's still something in you. that is uh in a way the the source and origin of that of that sense of urgency you know that it's been lost mm-hmm. you know i i think that maybe this um what you call like the integration of uh said experiences um i think it also kind of like justifies even um periods of disorientation or 
periods of purposelessness or whatever like in anything that may feel like you said like having lost one spark or you know something like that i think those again those are moments where i sometimes feel the magic <laughs> where where i think like how is it possible that i'm still doing great work when i don't enjoy it right you know, there's a lot to be said about the question of enjoyment in here. And I remember, and I guess for anyone listening to this, it's also important to know that you're my teacher uh, in, in music. And, uh, and I remember this time when I had gone through, like this is a couple of years ago, maybe even three years ago or something. I had gone through this moment of crisis where I kind of, I'd been working with you for a while and I felt like I had been really, it had been really transformative. But when I sat down to play, with a friend of mine to like just jam with a friend of mine. I felt really inhibited. Like I, I felt like I couldn't do anything. Um, and everything was just like a kind of stuttering or like incapacity to produce music, I guess. And <laughs> you said something wonderful at the time, which was like, you said two things. You said, okay, William, I know that you are capable of playing a single note and with that note making someone cry. But I also suspect that you will never enjoy playing music again the way that, but the way that you once did. <laughs> and I knew what you meant because, you know, of course you, I, I, or I think I knew what you meant. Maybe you can tell me, but, um, I didn't take that as a kind of bleak comment uh, or a wholly bleak comment. Uh, I understood that what you were saying was that in a sense, a kind of automatic or naive enjoyment had kind of vanished probably uh, forever from, from <laughs> you know, but that there was another kind of enjoyment that was kind of inseparable from uh, a, a heightened form of attention and, and like a kind of perennial struggle. And I think that in some way, like you've often said to me something along the lines of like, I don't actually enjoy playing my instruments. <laughs> and, and like at a certain level, it's of course like a mysterious statement because like, it's the thing you do and it's the thing you do so extraordinarily. And, you know, it, and of course I know that it, for you, there is pleasure in this and that there's like, you know, and, and that music in some sense is like probably the, the deepest and most profound thing in your soul, you know, but, but at the same time, there is this way in which it's just not enjoyable. Like it's just like not a source of enjoyment. I don't know. I Maybe you can say more no, it's, about it's, it's, I mean, it's. I think it's quite simple. It's. It is. Uh, I think you know we, as beings, sort of, we have different. Let's just call it talents or interests or you know like like what does what does feed us you know what where is the where is the substance that feeds us you know and for me the playing is not is not where it is 
it is it is the music so it is what i can enjoy i i can enjoy listening to the creation as i create it and that is the enjoyment but it's not the playing itself and this is this is what what can be uh, confusing when i say that because people uh because people do not experience what i experience when i you know the the, the act of creation which is quite a I don't want to call it a struggle, but it's it's quite uh, an energy expense. It's it's it is expensive. Like what I do is super expensive, um, and uh, but you know, like people on the outside, they hear the end result because they they hear the music just like I hear the music when I listen to the recording, or if I'm uh, if I'm uh, in the moment enough, I can also experience it in the moment. Uh, so that's what I mean when I say I don't enjoy playing, you know. Are you confident every time that you pick up an instrument that you will be able to do it? Like, and when I say do it, I mean do it, like achieve the thing that you're setting out to achieve. Yeah, it's. I think there's, there's a certain um, skill to kind of like creating the situation in which that is possible. So it's not that I would say I would be capable of doing that in any situation that somebody else would present me with, but I'm, you know, like, and this is, this is another part of magic, really. Like you've got to prepare it. It's not that you can draw the, the rabbit out of the hat without preparation. Right. So, so, so that's why um, I would say like, you know, the uh, answer to your question is yes. I know exactly that I can de deliver the magic every time I perform. And this is this is crazy to me, even this is super crazy. And, you know, like um, some friends of mine, like some teachers of mine, they would say, Marcus, you're crazy to even say that, you know, like what should, what will people think about you? Um, <laughs> And, you know, some people say, like, if there's, like, uh, you know, like 5% of the, you know, the improvisation is a success, then that's, that's great. But for me, it has, it has become that, like, I have found a way, and maybe it's just because through um, me, or, you know, through me accepting anything as the best I could do in that moment, so 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 for me there's a very clear yes to the question like i can i can always deliver my best because what i deliver is my best and i mean to me that sounds also like a kind of um relation that one might seek to cultivate to life in general not yeah. just to to music yeah yeah for sure but then there you go like that that is um not so easy to because I'm not, you know, I'm not alone on this planet. If I were alone, I, you know, it would work. But you have to interface with other with other beings, and that's where a certain um, certain, you know, like there has to be some sort of common language. And what I what I just described is is yeah it's it's i don't want to say it's rare because like it's not rare with my common uh my colleagues let's say right mm -hmm. but with people who have no um 
no understanding of what I do, let's say, or that you don't even know what I do, it's difficult to kind of get on, on that onto that level of uh, discussion or of uh, of uh, of seeing each other. Yeah. Well, I think that when it comes to life, you know, this question is also one of how does one uh, move beyond uh, eternal regret, for instance, or guilt, um, or shame, you know, or a lot of the things that might arise in the wake of, uh, let's say, making mistakes. Um, I think it's I think it's related to uh, one's relationship uh, with. Uh, with one's parents and and what i mean by that is i mean it's obvious right like it's obvious that it comes from that but i think it's the process of of leaving home right leaving your parental home i think it's crucial to to um sort of like i don't have a good word for this um you may have a better one like you to to deny that you come from somewhere or from somebody and to really say okay here i am i'm alone this is my life i do not carry any of that shame blah 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 whatever you want to say with me and i go into life like this and i i, I mean for me it's easy to say because i somehow managed to um to um not feel responsible for my family, for my, you know, like, I mean, my elders, right? Your deep past. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that is the key. Like, to me, that is the key for a free life. Um, to, to understand that I do, I'm not responsible for my parents or for you know, like for where I, I'm come f coming from. Um, and I'm also not, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've just lost the thought, but there was something else. Yeah, but it, it's, it, it opens up as, uh, an opportunity for you to uh, stand freely in the world in some way. Um, to act, to act, to take on the responsibility of being of your own position in the world, I guess. Yeah, no, no I remember what I was going to say. It's like also it's the moment when ideally the moment when you stop being afraid of dying mm -hmm. or of death. But I think mm -hmm. dying is the is the better word. Um, and Can you say more about the connection between uh, liberating yourself from the deep past of your inheritance and uh, losing the fear of dying. I think it's the same thing. I don't, I don't know, really know how to put it, but like, that's my initial response. I think it's the, it really is sort of the same thing. It's just, it's just in the other direction. Mm -hmm. It's like where, where the deep past is say, like if you want to use a metaphor is behind you and the fear of dying is in front of you and it's that and, and you're kind of like moving on that line you could say but maybe a metaphor would be like that there's a way to take a step aside again ecstasy right yeah um, yeah 
absolutely. So do you do you um, interview people a lot in yeah. your profession? Yeah, it's one of the main uh, methods that I have for doing empirical research. Um, and of course, there is a whole set of things that one learns through trial and error about what it means to interview someone. And I think, you know, one of the one of the mistakes that I used to make a lot, and especially early on, was that I wanted to get the person that I was interviewing to like me or to be impressed with me so that they would tell me things. But in the process, I ended up just like explaining my analysis of various things to them. And they would just say, oh, yeah, that sounds plausible or, you know, that sounds reasonable. Uh, rather than finding a way to um, prompt them to just take the direction in whatever to whatever place you know they wanted to go and to have it be about them rather than about me and uh, <laughs> there, there you go now, now I'm feeling some guilt and shame here no I, I everything that you've said about yourself except for maybe one thing was prompted by my question Mm -hmm. or my invitation to you mm -hmm. to, okay. to expand on something so no no guilt <laughs> i see this as a conversation right i mean it's, yeah. it's a two-way thing yeah so this um you said that your first book was uh, about adver advertisements or mm -hmm. the uh was that the indian the This book was basically a, a look at the Indian advertising business in, in what's now Mumbai, what used to be Bombay. Um, and I did that research in the 90s at a time when India was kind of undergoing a big consumerist kind of uh, revolution, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of questions in the air around, you know, what does consumerism mean? What is globalization? What does it mean that all these foreign brands are coming in again? because they had actually been there before, and then a lot of them left in the 70s. Um, but my interest in the advertising business was really about like, okay, so you have this situation where basically global capitalism is trying to find new markets, trying to sell these goods to, you know, hundreds of millions of Indians. At that time, it was still just under a billion. Um, and what are the images and the words Uh, and the messages that uh, people think will be able to do this. Uh, and what are the debates around what will work and what won't work? And what do people think this mythical entity called the Indian consumer is? Um, so it's actually quite interesting from the point of view of, you know, what it means to do research. I found myself uh, during that research, spending, I spent about six months as part of that research going in every day to an ad agency in, in Bombay, sitting in on meetings, hanging out with people after work, you know, socially, um, following various things, looking through various kinds of documentation and stuff. And I realized that what some of the people, especially the people who are kind of like the managers in that agency, what they thought an anthropologist would be doing in an ad agency was something along the lines of consumer research, right? So they thought that my gaze 
like in some ways was like parallel to their gaze. Like if they were looking out at the Indian consumer or whatever that is, I would also be doing that. And that's kind of what a social scientist would be doing. I think gradually some of those people kind of realized that actually what I was interested in was them. <laughs> you know, they were my, uh, my research subjects, if you want to put it that way. And I think for some of them, that was a kind of really uncomfortable moment because they suddenly realized that, you know, what I was interested in was, in a sense, their understanding of the world, how they were constructing the whole project of consumerism, how they were kind of inventing this notion of like an Indian consumer, an Indian market. So, um, so that had not been um, uttered at the beginning of the project, that that may be the case or? Well, it was, you know, maybe it was also less clear to me as well at the beginning of the project, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what would end up happening and what my like real foci would be. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, when I came in, all I kind of knew was that I wanted to spend time following the work of an ad agency in this place um, and just find out what would happen through mm -hmm. doing that. And, you know, bless them, they were willing to let this random person come in and, you know, sit around and join meetings and stuff. You know, that's also like anthropologists always live by the kindness of strangers. You know, we... Uh, um, we depend on people's willingness to let us hang out uh, and to ask ignorant questions and to, um, you know. Sounds like the ideal job, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe it also involves a little bit of that suspension that you're talking about, right? Where you, you find yourself in a situation which is your present, which is maybe somewhere you didn't expect to be. And you have to let go of a lot of your own preconceptions, a lot of your own history, in order to be in some way kind of radically open to the, to the moment that you find yourself in. Let, let me ask you something, um, again, like rather mundane about research projects like the one you just talked about, for example. So how are these being set up in the world uh, of uh, your kind of social sciences, right? Mm -hmm. Is there, is uh, how is how are things being financed? How are contacts being made? Um, what is the process? Right. So we are talking here about uh, the context of uh, doing a PhD in anthropology in the yeah. United States. Yeah. Um, and what that means generally is that a PhD student will be funded by the university for several years to do this work. Mm -hmm. So rather than like at an undergrad level, of course, in the United States, infamously, and especially at private universities, students pay enormous amounts of money in order to have the privilege of going to these colleges and these universities at, at the graduate level, at the PhD level, the students are funded by the university. So they have that financial support. Maybe it's not uh, lavish, but it's there uh, and it allows for a certain kind of um, more or less exclusive devotion to the task of, of, the, of the research project of a PhD. They're also, in order to do uh, 
you know, field research in other parts of the world, there are various funding agencies that PhD students um, typically apply to for uh, fellowships and for grants. So it's very common, for instance, that um, students will go abroad to do research in another part of the world uh, funded by one of these grants, like, for instance, from the Social Science Research Council, which is a, a U.S. body, um, or the Fulbright Foundation, uh, or the National Endowment for the Humanities. So there are various uh, funding sources. Um, okay. and, and then, of course, you know, the question of how you get access to the people that you're going to be working with that's a whole other question. And sometimes that happens through existing scholarly networks. So maybe your PhD advisor has contacts in the country where you want to do your work, or maybe they can put you in touch with someone else, with a colleague somewhere else who, who has contacts in the relevant sector or area. Um, uh, maybe you actually happen to have friends from your life that uh, have some connection to this uh, world that you want to work with. So, for instance, in my case, uh, there was a guy that I had gone to school with uh, since I was like six years old who ended up uh, starting his own ad agency uh, in Helsinki, as it happens, and who got to know someone who was the CEO or in touch with the CEO of an ad agency in India, in Bombay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, through these kinds of connections, you, you write and you try to establish uh, contacts and you get in that way. But, but even then, once you're there, once you're like in this institutional setting, there's no, uh, you know, there's no clear roadmap for what you do day to day. Right. Like uh, I, I realized that, you know, I had spent so much time worrying about how, how I was going to get access to an ad agency that I had spent almost no time thinking about what I was going to do once I was actually there. So, uh, you know, I was given a desk, I was given like this little office to sit in. And then I was like, well, what the hell do I do now? Like, do I can't just like follow people around. I can't like look over someone's shoulder as they're like doing their work on the computer. So, you know, you have to make it up as you go along and you have to find ways to, uh, to create a structure for yourself with the people that you're working with. So it very much sounds like, like an art project. In some ways. Yeah, in some ways, but in, in several ways. <laughs> Tell think. me. <clears throat> I mean, just, just the fact that, um, so I guess like at the beginning of the process, there's got to be the idea, right? And yeah, maybe you have the funding before you have the idea, or I don't know, but... Um, you kind of have to have the idea first, at least yes. the version of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so it very much kind of like depends on your own initiative to kind of create these steps in that process. And, and uh, like you say, like you, maybe you, you get there, you have to sort of be creative um, at any, at any time to, um, to carry that process through. So it's like, even though you may, and you said that before, you may have a certain idea where things may go. But as you go along, you, you find, you find new perspectives and, and yeah. complete, completely new, uh, approaches. And yeah. you find yourself in situations where, I don't know, I'm sure you have some, some stories, uh, where, where things like really 
turn you know upside down and, and stuff like yeah. that and, and uh, sometimes you know things don't work out you know it's all in the way that you expected them to work out or your relationship with someone uh, breaks down and you're excluded from some access that you thought you were going to have um or you know you find yourself drawn into some kind of uh pre-existing conflict in the field site that you're working in so that you you like unwittingly became part of some sort of ongoing uh, rivalry or something like that you know these are all <laughs> these are all common common experiences for for anthropologists um you know and added to which is the fact that you are basically uh spending probably at least a year uh doing this so you know of the actual field work part of it right and very often in a place that is like quote unquote far away from home um and so you know there's a whole existential dimension to it which um is profound you know like there's a lot of uh, potential for um disorientation uh for um you know self loss there's also frankly and i think this is quite gendered uh you know there's a, a lot of potential for um harm for injury for uh, you know it's it's not uncommon especially that um that female uh, anthropologists suffer various forms of um violence or assault mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. during the course of um during the course of field work so you know it, It's yeah, a process, I just I, I yeah. just had this this um the realization just now that um uh I, I'm just going to say it there seems to be like a strong relation uh with journalism of some sort like again like I don't know again I don't know what the definition of journalism is but there and this is like my question really is how accepted is it or is it possible that in your in your research where you kind of like define your idea and your aim and and your hypothesis or whatever i don't know if you work on that level but anyway if you kind of like say you get into some situation that presents some other field of study say where you know something completely unexpected happens and you suddenly in a position where you observe something that you 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 never thought you would kind of be in the midst of and and is it is it kind of like is it possible to just kind of like modify your project in such a way so that that new thing becomes the thing yeah definitely and i think it in some ways it's almost expected that something like that will happen <laughs> yeah it's it's funny you know? it's, 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 it's like really funny yeah. if you don't undergo some kind of big surprising shift in your field work then there's almost the question of like what's wrong with you like were you not actually open to surprise you know and i think maybe that's part of the one of the differences between what we do as anthropologists and what some other kinds of researchers do you know is that in a way our method is premised on being surprised on undergoing some kind of fundamental shift it's it's amazing because like i remember that i mentioned the uh, carlos castaneda books to you I, which you said yeah. you hadn't read 
and right. and uh, because that's exactly like now it, it makes total sense. That's exactly what happens to him, right? Mm -hmm. On that level, uh, like, and I think I mentioned to you like the first two books are the same story, told from like two different perspectives. And it's interesting that Castaneda is perhaps the most well-known anthropologist of all. Like if you just kind of ask, <laughs> uh, if you ask a kind of general audience, you know, and like someone who has been profoundly influential on a lot of artists and writers and, uh, and so forth. And yet he's someone who is, you know, almost universally reviled, like within, or not reviled, but kind of not taken seriously in kind of like academic anthropology. And I, you know, again, I haven't read the books. I'm, I'm, I want to actually, because I keep having conversations with people I trust, like you, uh, who suggest them to me. Uh, and I've come to the, uh, I've come to the insight now that my resistance to it is probably actually um, uh, an obstacle for me rather than you know something uh, that i should cling to i mean it's it's uh, <clears throat> for me uh, for me the the uh, um, aspect of him being an anthropologist doesn't doesn't matter or never mattered at all mm. like i think it's it's just great really great stuff right and when you read it you will also understand why because it's so radical like it's extremely radical and it's radical it's radical in it it's it's ridiculous right and that's what makes it so amazing and it's not something it's not something one has to take seriously it's it's it is like it is like a now I'm gonna, it's like a magic it's a magic drink and literally it is like you know but it's like something that you consume to give you an insight. It's not that what is written is the insight. And, and, and it's, uh, yeah, so that's why I would still recommend it to you, you know, because I you think will, you understand. Yeah. No, I mean, this, of course, like, what's my appetite to, to drink this substance more than ever, <laughs> but, but there's, but there's something about what you're saying, which I think points to, in a way, one of the prejudices of academia, which is that um, academics uh, generally, their prestige rests on um, the idea that when you read, you are, you're, um, as it were, amassing knowledge uh, rather than that you are being transformed by what you read. Right, so there's there's a there's a kind of um, uh, assumption of a kind of distance in the academic uh, mindset, right? Uh, where whatever it is that you're engaging, you're kind of at a distance from it. That's that's kind of the the formula of scientific authority, right? Is that you're kind of like you as a subject are at a distance from the object that you're uh, that you're engaging with. That you have a kind of impartiality or sort of, yeah, you know, separation from it. Yeah. Whereas what you're describing and what I sense, you know, just uh, from uh, whatever I've kind of circumstantially gathered about uh, Castaneda, 
but also not only about him, is that what's at stake here is actually um, the possibility of magic, which is um, being transformed, being, being directly affected by the thing that you're engaging, uh, by the thing that you're, as you put it, consuming. Although I maybe, you know, wouldn't have used that word because, you know, it has this kind of like consumerist kind of uh, <laughs> uh, resonance. But yes, consuming in the sense of ingesting, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Like if if yeah. I could imagine like myself ingesting a book and being, and being changed by it, substantially transformed. It is fascinating to me because the, you know, the, the writing, I'd say, is so fascinating to me because it is the, the, the very embodiment of what the what it is about and it being life or whatever you can like it is embodied in the very basic fabric of how he is working with words like because you you know as you read it like you like at least for me you always ask yourself the question is this real or is it made up And that's what the books are about. That is that is the fundamental question that is being asked. And I don't even know if that was intentional, but but it's so great that as the as the reader, and that's why I think I understand it's it's super unscientific in that regard. Mm -hmm. Right? But because the the the, the research he's doing there is unscientific. It has to be unscientific in order to, in order to find find answers, right? And what I take you to be saying is that the the text doesn't describe it. It does, right? Like the the text does the thing. It doesn't describe the thing, or yes. in describing it, it does it. Um, yes. Maybe would be another yes. way of putting it, which. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, is, um, like you said, like from a quote-unquote scientific perspective, uh, that's always been questionable because science likes to keep things at a distance. Hey, you know, <clears throat> I have this insight now because, you know, since I am very much like that, I would say, like my my art, like, you know, my art is very much like what... Um, you know, a lot like those books, I think. And now I realize that that's maybe why there is such a... Some people, or quite a few people, kind of like push against me. Uh, interesting. I never, I never, I never really thought about it that way because for me, it's a, it's a very, very uh, natural way of being. <clears throat> But within the context of uh, music or composition academia or whatever, like people don't really want to take what I do seriously. Obviously, there are many exceptions, but um, it's kind of like a general trend that there's like these, this, this. Uh, this this uh, army of skeptics that that I seem to face every day, right? What, what do you think, Marcus, that the skepticism or the resistance comes from in the realm of music? 
I, I think it's that approach that, as you say, that my music does, right? So it it is it is it is kind of like um, a demanding, demanding the 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 listener to sort of like maybe even even in a violent way, you know, maybe mm -hmm. it's like it's not it's it's not um, non-violent communication it's some sort of demanding it's like asking the question why you know? and you know it, what you're uh, saying about your music reminds me of something that Roland Barthes once wrote about photographs where he says the photograph and I may be getting the word slightly wrong here but the photograph is violent not because Uh, it shows violent things, but because it fills the site by force and in it, nothing can be refused or transformed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and what I heard you saying is that in your music, um, your music, in a sense, requires that, um, that your listener undergo something. Yeah. So they don't listen to your music; they undergo your music. Mm -hmm. And and that's why, yeah, for lack of a better word, uh, promoting my work is really difficult because it mm -hmm. feels like like uh, it's. I mean, yeah, it's it's being. You know, I don't want to force it on people. Right? And yet. <laughs> yet I, yet, yet I do. <laughs> and yet you do, because the music itself wants to. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's... Um, you just spoke about the, the PhD level, say, of work in uh, or a research project. Um, what is it like for you nowadays? Like, which which position are you in? What do you do? Do you teach? Uh, and and do you still have the opportunity to have your own your own research projects? Yeah. That you can, yeah. So, in terms of the kind of uh, professional steps in the United States for a um, you know uh, a faculty member in an academic department, you generally go from if you're If you're in a what they call a tenure track job, which means that you're uh, going to be considered for a permanent appointment down the line, you go from assistant professor, which is an untenured position, to associate professor, which is generally a tenured position, to full professor, which is kind of like the you know the kind of the end of the promotion line. Um, and so I've been full professor now for um, almost 10 years. And um, in my particular situation, I'm very privileged because I work in a, you know, in a very good department and, um, you know, I have access to quite a lot of research resources and funding for research and things like that. And, you know, I get to work with, with very, very good students, both at the undergraduate and the graduate levels. Mm -hmm. 
but the expectation is that we will uh, be researchers as well as teachers. Um, so, you know, in a sense, one, one justifies one's existence in this kind of a situation, both through hopefully excellence in teaching, but also very importantly, excellence in research. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there are different moments, I think, in my life where either teaching or research had kind of been differently inspiring to me. Um, you know, and sometimes I felt like I've kind of run dry in one area, but I've sort of had a lot of energy for the other. Um, and that tends to oscillate a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, one, and I think hopefully, you know, one's able to uh, reinvent oneself and kind of reimagine the process at every step um, in such a way that it doesn't become mechanical. And certainly, I don't know if this rings a bell with you and, and with creative projects, music projects, but I feel like every time I am working on a new project, every time I'm writing a new book or a new set of articles, um, I find myself often kind of, the first step is often that I find myself using the same form for the new project that I used for the old project. And then at a certain point, I realize that the, the content of this project demands a different form. Uh, you know, a different voice, a different strategy, um, a different uh, architecture, if you like. And at that point, there's usually like a kind of mini crisis where, you know, everything falls apart and you don't know what you're doing. And then out of that comes some kind of new, um, some kind of new organization. And I feel maybe like teaching is a little bit like that as well. Um, maybe nothing is easier to become mechanical in than the classroom. Uh, like there's always this kind of, I think, threat that one falls into a kind of routine of what teaching is and like how teaching works. And it's absurd because nothing could be more um, variable mm -hmm. than a classroom because you're always dealing with a new set of people. Um, you're always dealing with a new historical moment. And yet the work of, um, of putting yourself I think, you know, when you were talking about uh, your music uh, making process being expensive in the sense of an expenditure of energy and focus and what it takes out of you, I think, you know, I've always found teaching to be that way because I think if you, if you go into teaching um, with the idea that every encounter um, is an opportunity to rise to the occasion of a very specific moment with a very specific set of people in that room um, and a specific set of people, the things that you're discussing. It's exhausting. It's wonderful, but it's exhausting. You know, um, it takes everything out of you, everything that you have. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go in and just deliver a lecture that you've written, you know, 20 years ago, and you read it every year in that same lecture course, you know, I, I just couldn't do that. That's not teaching. No, I just couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, do you have any current um, research project that you can talk about? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot. Um, I'm going back in time and dealing with some old stuff of mine that I've been collecting for more than 20 years. I'm 
also looking forward to some new projects, um, but maybe, you know, one that I could talk just briefly about is, um, you know, related to this idea of the occult shadow of the modern, which we started with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have this idea that a lot of the um, knowledges and practices that we now think of as magical. So let's talk about, you know, alchemy, for instance, or uh, practical magic or astrology in its medieval and ancient forms even. These are all uh, traditions that were present in, you know, all parts of the world in various forms uh, for thousands of years. Um, and what I've been really interested in thinking about is how, rather than taking a kind of antiquarian relationship to these to these knowledges or these literatures, rather than taking a kind of historian's perspective of, you know, intellectual history of, oh, this is the way they thought in the Middle Ages, this is the way they thought in the classical period. That's all great. I mean, I, I really, I'm fascinated by those kind of books. But what I'm interested in is like, how can we use some of this knowledge to revolutionize, if that's not too strong a word, um, our like social scientific or critical theory understandings? Um, like, is there a way in which we can actually draw on some of these traditions to understand things like charisma in politics, for instance, or to understand our engagements with the media or what the internet is, or, you know, even what it means to fall in love with someone or to have an aesthetic experience, you know, all these things that we think of in, let's say, disenchanted secular terms, you know, uh, maybe there's a lot of mileage to be had. I'm sensing it's just an intuition. Um, maybe there's a, a lot of mileage to be had in excavating some of these traditions for what they can help us understand, um, you know, at the heart of, again, very ordinary things, coming back to this, this our theme of like, have, have no right to despise the ordinary because it's much stranger than we think. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a really huge project. Yeah. Which, this, which is, is this has always been my problem, you know, it's like that I, I kind of want to um, develop a theory of everything, mm -hmm. you know, like I, mm -hmm. I, I, I sort of, you know, rather than sensibly doing the thing that you're supposed to do, which is like carve out a kind of specific area. Like I, I tend, I tend toward these kind of projects that are, in some sense, about everything, and um, you know. But maybe that's true in a sense for everyone. Like even the most specialized kind of scholars, you know. Like there's that principle of kind of, you know, you find heaven in a grain of sand. You know, like the whole universe is in a grain of sand. Um, that you know, maybe sometimes, like the closer you look at a detail, the more the whole universe kind of reveals itself in that one detail. Um, so, you know, let's see, let's see how it goes. Let's see what the, like any project there's, you know, any research project, there's a kind of oscillation between moments when you go wide and moments when you go narrow, mm -hmm. like when you like oscillation between moments when you kind of open up to as many things as possible 
And then moments when you say, okay, now I need to kind of narrow this down to get more specific to focus on this, this thing. So we'll see. And, you know, one of the great um, privileges and opportunities of the kind of position that I have now, which is that I'm basically, you know, securely employed and, you know, I have the, a, a significant amount of freedom to kind of pursue uh, whatever research agenda I, I would like to pursue is that I can take time to do this. You know, I don't, I don't, there's, there's nothing that other than my own superego, there's nothing that says, you know, you have to publish like X number of articles every year, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not minimizing the power of my superego in this because there is a voice in me that says, come on, man, you haven't published, like, you've only published one thing this year. How's that going to look on your CV? But the truth is that that's like, that's just me whipping myself, you know, like the, objectively, there's no reason why I have to um, operate at a given pace, you know, and I think that that opens up the possibility to, um, to be experimental, to be speculative, to see where the, you know, where the, the, the breadcrumbs, you know, the trail of breadcrumbs kind of takes me. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful because just five minutes ago, I, I was going to ask you, William, what is your masterpiece, right? <laughs> Something like that. But now I'm confident that what you just explained to me, what you were telling me about, that is going to be your masterpiece. Hmm, maybe. I think it's important maybe to imagine that the best is always ahead, you know? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I kind of, uh, again, like it's about which framework you set for yourself. Like, you know, if you are, you're a boxer, right. And you turn 70, mm -hmm. you know, Like, so you got to do something else. And maybe you also are good at chess, you know, like maybe there's something yeah. else. That's, that's what I mean. You know, yeah. like, so, so as long as you kind of like design your own, your own, uh, field of expertise or your field of activity, um, there is no such thing as, uh, decline. Right. Well, and I would say also that, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a business and a profession, which is, um, you know, much to the annoyance of my junior colleagues, uh, rather gerontocratic, right? That is that like, it's the, the old people have the authority <laughs> and, you know, and it's, it's not ageist in that way, you know, like in academia, you don't, I mean, of course you can become, uh, if you stop, reinventing yourself you can become uh, a relic you can become a dinosaur mm -hmm. but um it's you know academia as a profession is relatively um generous with aging in other words you know you it, it doesn't automatically dismiss you because you've passed a certain age or because you know maybe your body starts falling apart you know there's there's uh you know there's still hope <laughs> <laughs> William, this was wonderful. This was um, yeah. Thank really, you, Marcus, uh, for this opportunity. I mean, I I knew that talking with you was was always going to be, um, you know, what a conversation should be, which is just like an opening onto the unknown, you know, and uh, magic. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, yeah, let's let's leave it at that. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. L uh, lots to uh, pick up on later. Yes. Bye-bye right. for now. Be well. Thank Bye -bye. you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.